Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Farm and Garden Show. I'm your host, Elizabeth Archer. Very happy to be back in the studio after uh, my show two weeks ago when I was broadcasting from home with COVID. I know there's a lot of you out there. Maybe you're bored because uh, you're stuck in quarantine. So I hope I have a, a rapt audience today. Um, and obviously, I hope everyone is well and staying healthy. Um, on that note, I'm very excited for my guest today. I have Susan Lightfoot Schempf on the line. Susan is the co-director of the Food Systems Leadership Team at the Wallace Center. She lived in Mendocino County for a number of years and was the founding executive director of the Noyo Food Forest in Fort Bragg. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of that. Uh, she then moved to Ukiah to become the regional farm to fork manager for North Coast Opportunities, which is where we met. And then that's where Susan spearheaded countywide farm to school initiatives and led the planning and design for the Mendo Lake Food Hub, still going strong today. And those are two critical pieces of our local food system that are still, like I said, going strong. Susan is from Louisiana originally. She moved back to New Orleans in 2014, much to our local loss, but the world's gain to get her MS in international development from Tulane University Law School. She has worked for the Wallace Center since 2016. Without further ado, welcome Susan to the show. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Hello, Mendocino. Um, it's great to be here. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for inviting me to to come and chat with you today. Oh, it's excited so, about this conversation. It's so nice to have you here. Um Obviously, we're friends, full disclosure. I don't think that's going to stop <laughs> us from having a good conversation. Um, but I just want everyone to know, Susan and I go way back to uh, when you moved to Ukiah. When did you first come to Mendocino County? Um, I think it was about 2003. I sort of trickled down from Humboldt County where I graduated from um, undergraduate. And myself and my best friend, Kim Morgan, who's also one of the co-founders of the Noya Food Forest, we found our way to Mendocino. Um, and I found a little cabin in Albion and had a work trade on a, um, a small piece of land there that had a hot tub. It's a community hot tub, H Road. For folks that are listening out there, it used to be a really great spot. I don't think that's still open to community anymore, but... Um, I landed there and just started planting roots and meeting people, and it just caught my heart and ended up staying for about 11 years or so in Mendocino before I moved back to, to New Orleans, like you said. What a very Mendo story. You ended up in a yeah. work share place in Albion. Uh <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I fully put up like little flyers looking for work and found all kinds of interesting connections that way and just um, felt really embraced by the community from the get go. And I think um, that really, you know, is woven throughout my story of my time in Mendocino. It was a really special and and just like formative time of my youth. I feel like I kind of grew up in Mendocino. Well, you did a lot of interesting things while you were growing up in Mendocino, including um, being one of the original founders of the Noyo Food Forest. So tell us a little bit about that, which is still an ongoing organization, and kind of what inspired you and yours to to start that up and what its mission was. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at that time in the early 2000s, um, in the northern coast of Mendocino, like Fort Bragg in particular, was really going through an identity shift um, after the, the GP Mill uh, site had closed in, I think, 99 or so. 
Um, there was just like a lot of kind of potential under the surface of like, what is this town going to become? Um, which direction is it going? And my friends and I were kind of newer to the community and wanting to do something, wanting to make something happen. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Mendocino County is it is a place where you can plant a seed um, and things will grow, that you'll you'll get find the energy and support for really anything that you want to make happen. Um, and so as we were just kind of pulling together in, in potlucks and, and brainstorming sessions and visioning sessions of like, what could we do? We were just really drawn to the power of food and the power of food as a tool for bringing people together, um, which, you know, our initial tagline for Noya Food Forest was because everybody's got to eat. Like Amen. food is the one thing that really stitches us all together across humanity. And I've always really felt that deep in my belly, literally, about how food is this really transformative tool for change and for connection and building more connection and more of a sense of shared humanity. And I think, you know, there's a lot of division in the community at that time. And I'm not sure if those rifts are still kind of present there or not, but certainly, um, you know, there's like kind of... Um, folks that have lived on the northern uh, Mendocino coast for a long time and um, had been really wed and, and had been um, nourished and supported by the more extractive economy around, you know, timber um, in particular. And then folks that were coming in and had, had maybe a progressive vision for, you know, alternative energy, alternative agriculture, et cetera, and like a little bit of a, a rift in the community around that. And we were like, what could we do that would help to heal, to bring people together and heal um, and something that the, the, the community could really unite around. And it felt like food and gardens was one of those places that like folks across um, all spectrums of the political divide that has really become you know, more severe now that, that everyone in Mendocino had some connection to the land and to food and to gardening in particular. So we felt like that would be a really powerful way of bringing people together. And that's kind of how the vision was formed. And initially we were looking at the GP mill site as a, a space to be able to grow something and make something happen. And as we realized that that was going to be caught up in what's now turned into decades, still literally decades ongoing. of, yeah, it's still ongoing. We were like, well, where else can we get something going? Where else could we get started? Um, and just out of a beautiful set of circumstances and introductions that, um, started with the former mayor, Jerry Mello in Fort Bragg, who's since passed. Um, he introduced me to Steve Lund, who was the superintendent of Fort Bragg Unified School District. And Steve was like, we have this property at the high school that's been underutilized for years. What if we did something there? And so that's really what happened. It's like, you know, folks just rallying to be like, you know, these folks, these, this crew has a vision and they're trying to make something happen. And people all along the way just helped us to find the resources and the connections that were necessary. And folks really rallied around and helped to build the first garden, which was the, the learning garden at Fort Bragg High School. And you worked there for a couple of years, right? More than yeah, a couple I years. was part. Yep, I was, um, you know, kind of hustling for the Noya Food Forest <laughs> for about seven years um, when I had my first real run-in with burnout and what it means to be a nonprofit leader um, who's working day in and day out to make something happen in community. Um, and not really knowing much at that time about work-life balance and figuring out, like, I was just, I was a kid. I mean, I was 
starting an organization I had never even re- I had worked in one nonprofit before, but I didn't really know much about running an organization or managing people or you know creating a budget. I remember Steve teaching me how to make a budget, how to make an organizational budget. My first year as the as the executive director, and I I think I even have a, a picture still of my first paycheck for five hundred dollars. Um, Ooh, big time! Force, which is a big deal, you know. <laughs> so um, you made the decision then, experiencing burnout in nonprofit world, to move inland and work for another nonprofit. Well, actually, before that, I went. I, I made myself a sabbatical. I went to Africa, various parts of Africa, for about seven months. Then I came back, and that's when that. Um, the opportunity with North Coast Opportunities came about. But, you know, my time in Kenya in particular was with um, a community of young farmers that were trying to get a learning garden going in their community in Kitali, Kenya. Um, It's OTEPIC, the Organic Technology Extension and Promotion of Initiatives Center, um, who, you know, wild, here's another wild Mendocino story. Philip, who's the leader of Otepic from Kenya, had come to Mendocino to be an apprentice with John Jevons. Um, oh, wow. So out at Ecology Action, they've had a long-standing international um, exchange program and apprenticeship program. And Philip had come to um, Mendocino to learn about Grow Biointensive Method. We had a really interesting relationship with them where we would bring their interns to the learning garden. So Philip had come to the learning garden and had seen and had connected with the youth interns that we had at the learning garden that summer and had seen what was happening there. And he said, I want to make this happen in my community. Like, this is exactly what I have envisioned. And that's when Philip and I had developed a relationship that then turned into a bunch of people in Mendocino raising money to help them buy a piece of land that has since turned into multiple properties in Kitali. Um, that they have a flourishing agricultural education program, community-based food system happening. I mean, so much cool work. And it all that kind of trickles back to connections that were made in Mendocino. That's an awesome story. I don't think I knew the full extent of that. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today has to do with connection, um, because you really can't talk about food, certainly not a local food movement, without connections. Um, but I want to just, I do want to get to our main um, topic today, which is supply chain. But first, I, could you tell us a little bit about what you did at North Coast Opportunities when you moved over to Ukiah and um, how those sure. things are still... I mean, both of the things that you started are still going. So give us the origin stories. It was such a fun time because the team that I was working with was just so all in. And you were one of the people that I met um, through that time at North Coast Opportunities, also working with Miles Gordon and April Cunningham and Patty Bruder and Tarni Sheldon and just amazing, committed um, community members who just, you know, shared this passion for bringing people together around food and also really saw um, that Mendocino had a lot going for it around local food systems and that there was a lot to build on, that this had been a tradition that had been, you know, part of the community for hundreds of years, um, if not thousands of years, going back to the indigenous peoples of the um, of the land in Mendocino. So, you know, it's very much part of the, the DNA of the community. Um, and it just felt like we were there to sort of steward and facilitate that through our roles at NCO. Um, so, you know, I was hired in as a farm to fork manager. And my first kind of, you know, role there was really to help 
connect farmers into schools. And, um, you know, we had a lot of farm to school work happening. I had been, I was able to build on what I had learned in working in partnership with Fort Bragg Unified School District and getting food from the learning garden into the cafeteria there. And I just learned about a lot of the, the challenges that the schools face. Um, you know, it is a Herculean effort that schools manage to feed children every day. Um, and the constraints that they have, the regulatory and kind of compliance environment they have to work within, um, they're like, you know, oftentimes school food service is sort of relegated to, um, it, it's not seen as part of the educational system necessarily, you know, so um, they're the last ones to find out about changes that are happening in the school, like just don't aren't at the table to help make decisions that will absolutely impact what they can do in the cafeteria to keep children nourished. So, right, like when they cut a lunch period from 30 minutes to 15 minutes or... Right, and just, you know, I mean, it, it's really incredible. And so, I mean, I think one of the things that I, I focused on first was just trying to build relationship with the folks that were running the kitchens across the schools in you know Mendocino and Lake counties and just try to understand like who they were and what their vision was and I think through that it was it was actually really um, a lovely kind of emergent approach but what what happened is we ended up focusing in on like the leadership in the cafeterias like how could we really support the people that were working in the cafeterias first and foremost um, and providing them with culinary education and training knife skills training and bringing in chefs to just like inspire and ignite their creativity and seeing them as leaders within the school um, environment and just really emphasizing that. And that's how some events came about, like Feeding Our Future, a really fun event that we did with all the school districts um, several summers in a row to bring all the um, school nutrition staff together to, you know, think about creative menu development and learn about new ways to incorporate fresh fruits and vegetables and how to work with farmers, et cetera. Like we just had a lot of fun. Um, well, and you also got events. some pretty major new equipment into quite a few local schools. We um, did. You upgraded quite a few, that program upgraded quite a few school kitchens in ways that enabled those food service workers to prepare more fresh scratch ingredients from scratch yeah. meals, which was Pretty big. I feel like you and I could talk the big. whole hour <laughs> about that program. Um, but I also want you to tell me a little bit about the uh, Mendo Lake Food Hub, which sort of your role morphed into. Um, they, I believe NCO got a grant, uh, USDA block grant, to start a food hub, see what was there. Um, and that's I actually came on as the year assistant at that point. And we were kind of like, how do we how do we build a food? How do we do <laughs> this? Um, and that actually relates to the work you're doing now. So can you tell us a little bit about? I'm interested in the Mendo Lake Food Hub uh, specifically because it is still thriving, um, but and also sort of food hubs around the country and sure. how they're similar and different maybe to ours. Well, yeah, I mean, as we were you know trying to build up. Um, these connections between farmers and schools, and then also looking past schools into, you know, restaurants and grocery stores and hospitals, et cetera, it became very clear very quickly that there had to be a more kind of um, streamlined way of making those connections um, because, you know, if one school food service director has to interface with 25 different farmers when they're one distributor 
can provide them with a huge array of products. Cisco. I mean, yeah, it's it's just a really tough sell. Um, and it's always going to be um, a challenge to have it. Like you'll always be limited by scale and sense of how many relationships can one person really manage in terms of vendors. Um, and that's true for restaurants, hospitals, grocery stores, et cetera. So needing to have some kind of coordinated um, inventory and purchasing system and distribution system, because it's also just really inefficient and expensive to have farmers running around the county making deliveries. So, and I think particularly with the the geographical layout of Mendocino with, you know, inland and coastal production being so distinct, you know, and the crops that are grown inland are really needed on the coast and vice versa, um, that there, you know, needed to be some kind of coordinated system. And so um, that's where the conversations about, you know, what does that look like and how do we do that? And is it about farmers coordinating on deliveries? Like, I think we kind of started there um, and had some initial connections between, for example, like Gowan's apple growers in the Philo region with the pear growers inland and trying to figure out how to have them be have be on shared distribution routes. And we, we try to work out some of those kinds of just like smaller piloting of shared distribution. And then pretty quickly, like, um, realized that we needed something that was more comprehensive. And so that's really where this concept of the food hub came into, um, into play. And I mean, putting that together was, you know, you were, you were part of that. So I'd love to hear your reflections on it too, but it was really fun because we would go and we were just talking with everyone and just trying to make sense out of what we were hearing and then design something that would really address the unique challenges and opportunities and assets in the community um and that's something that would really work for the long term and right. it's you know a delight to know that it's still in operation um these many years later yeah i mean when just in the design phase i feel like we went through about a dozen iterations of what, how it could look um and i think the way it operates today it's also it's evolved quite a few times it certainly did a, a major shift during the pandemic um like everyone and everything globally um mm -hmm. but yeah i mean it's a, a food hub in a rural community with such a large geography it was like our food hub has all the problems of any food hub anywhere <laughs> so it really is a testament to the strength of our local food shed and the commitment of people who want to keep it strong and keep building it that it's it still exists and to yeah. the you know the eaters the local eaters that want that local food um you left us before the hub got up and running uh which is fine we're not upset about it <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I know I, I, I like bailed when it was right the time to like actually implement. It was I was like, I'm sorry, I'm out. I'm, I'm going, going to school. school. <laughs> but one of the things I think, you know, and in, in sort of reflecting back on that time that it was actually my first um, real interface with policy work um, was during that time because we realized that um, in order to be able to sell to the hospitals, restaurants, grocery stores, et cetera, we needed to have an approved source that was like in the CD, the California Department of Food and Agricultural Code, right? But there wasn't, Mendocino County hadn't really written out what that meant. That's not really our style. No, yeah. Being, being ahead <laughs> of things like, like that. But it was a barrier. 
So we ended up having to go down this whole other road that none of us, I think, were that excited about, but having to develop out the approved source program, which I understand is still in place now and is really a key component of enabling um, those sales directly into, you know, grocery stores, schools, et cetera. And so that process of working with the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Human um, Services and like the public public health, et cetera, we were all at the table, like really trying to problem solve together. And that was a really formative experience for me because now in the role that I'm in, in the Wallace Center, I'm doing a lot of interfacing with the USDA, with the White House, with the Food and Nutrition Services, with the Agricultural Marketing Service. And it's the same kind of um, problem solving and, and thinking things through together that I experienced in Mendocino County. I'm able to sort of draw on that same sort of collegial approach that we had in Mendocino in my job now. That um, is the perfect started there. It's the perfect segue, Susan. Uh, let me introduce <laughs> you for people who have joined us in the last 20 minutes. This is Elizabeth Archer. You're listening to the Farm and Garden Show. My guest today is Susan Lightfoot Shemp. She used to live in Mendocino County and did a bunch of cool stuff in food while she was here. Now she lives in New Orleans and is the co-director of the Food Systems Leadership Team at the Wallace Center. So I'm willing to bet good money that most of our listeners have not heard of the Wallace Center because I certainly hadn't heard of them before you started working there. So just in a nutshell... Tell us what the Wallace Center is, and then we're going to talk about what you do there. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll start it by saying it's not an easy organization to describe. <laughs> so I will do my best, but I'm going to do it through a little bit of story rather than giving you the like spiel of the organization. We love a story. I love a story. Okay. So when we were designing the Food Hub, we were like, we don't know how to do this. <laughs> what is this? What does this mean? What do we need to be thinking about? And we started doing research. And that's when we at North Coast Opportunities discovered the Wallace Center, because the Wallace Center is a national organization that um, works to support the people on the ground that are working to build more equitable and resilient local and regional food systems. So they're they're not direct implementing we're not we're not directly implementing food systems projects like i was when i was in mendocino my role now is to support the people that are doing that work your upper so, management now yeah i mean it's like it's like the next layer up i don't know we're sort of at the 30,000 foot level um but you know, at that time when we were developing the Food Hub and the Mendel Lake Food Hub, we went to the Wallace Center's National Food Hub Conference, where we were connecting with other local food systems practitioners from across the country, learning about what they were doing, what was working, what was not working, and a lot of like peer-to-peer knowledge sharing, you know, exchanging of resources, etc. The Wallace Center convenes those kinds of folks to help them problem solve together. That's probably the easiest way that I can describe what we do. Um, I lead a national network called the Food Systems Leadership Network that has about 3,000 food systems leaders across the country that are doing the kind of work that we've been talking about in this call. Um, And we provide a lot of leadership development. So just supporting them. I mean, that, that work is really tough. I mean, you have to wear so many different hats from, you know, managing grants to, you know, fostering collaboration in community, working through really difficult challenges in a community, um, you know, just, oh, God, there's just like so many different 
aspects well, and of you've his work. Done all of them. I mean, from your start at Noyo Food Forest when you were. I mean, a farmer, 25. basically. You were 25. And then, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you started that nonprofit. And then you moved up to NCO, where you worked at sort of like the 10,000-foot level of helping people, um, you know, really directly connected to those food systems. And now, as you said, you're up at the 30,000-foot level, which is where you are helping the people helping the people. <laughs> yeah. Helping, yeah. I mean, helping it's the- a trip. <laughs> It's a trip, and but I mean, it's also it's awesome because I have been able to build relationship with people all over the country. I mean, from Alaska to Hawaii to Puerto Rico. I mean, every expanse of the country, I have relationships with the most amazing people. And if any of y'all you know listening, you know that food people are the best people. <laughs> They're just so grounded and practical, but also there is a. Um, an internal optimism and hope in every grower. You have to have faith in the seed that it is going to sprout and grow into something. Like you have, you have to believe that something is going to come of your effort or else, I mean, you know, I mean, farmers, it's, it's magic really that we have food at our plate every day because it does require like so much hope and optimism that something is going to come when you you plant that seed. So all of the people that I know, they are like, um, they are so visionary and also grounded and practical. And I love that balance. It's like, we are actually like, you can see and touch what the fruit of our labor, literally. And, and not so much me now in the role that I'm in, um, I have to go out in my own backyard to get that feeling, right? But the folks that I'm supporting and connecting and building relationship with and and, and connecting to one another mm-hmm. and also connecting to the USDA, to foundations um, and through, you know, I could go on about some of the other work that we do, but um, that's the best part of my job is just being able to kind of um, build this network and have a sense of what's going on around the country and my my role not too dissimilar to what ours was when we were trying to make sense out of what was going on within Mendocino County and to design something that would be meaningful and help address the unique challenges of all these different perspectives and, and points of view and, and needs within the food system. I do that now um, in partnership with my team to make sense out of what's going on in local and regional food systems across the country and to say, you know, where are the opportunities? What are the innovations? Like, where are the needs and gaps that policy or programming from either foundations or, um, you know, municipalities, states, the USDA and federal government that could support those things? So I, I do this kind of sense making um, and then helping to sort of coalesce that into story that can be shared both with the folks that are working on the ground to help so that that's useful to them because um, they need to be able to sort of rely on publications from the Wallace Center, for example, to say, hey, you know, in the, in the recent report by the Wallace Center, it says that X percentage of food hubs have the capacity to serve schools right now, you know, like that, that they're able to sort of cite that um, information that we gather then we also use that information to advocate at the federal level for changes in policy and programming that would then help to advance our you know shared vision for more equitable food system in the United States. I was just going to say how much of that sort of opportunity seeking and also gap identification is focused on sort of 
an equitable distribution of resources. Um, you know, the, a lot of, you really can't talk about food without talking about food justice. Um, you know, so many of our, the, the people who are actually in the fields are, you know, brown people. Um, and just, you know, any minority farmer is going to be at a disadvantage historically and currently. So how much of, of that work that you do is focused on, um, food justice, social justice, and just, you know, a more equitable distribution of resources. All of it. All of it. I mean, that, that's the simplest answer that I can frankly give. I mean, if we're not working towards equity, then we are working towards inequity. I mean, there is no, there is no alternative. Um, and it's really complex within this movement um, because there are many, many different kinds of people within the movement who have from all over the country who have, you know, this is where politics and food care are, are inextricably linked. Um, and it's really complicated. Um, but I mean, it's, it's absolutely essential that the work that the Wallace Center does is centering the needs um, and the priorities of the people who are at the front line of food production in particular. Um, and that is, as you said, I mean, a lot of black and brown people across the country, particularly farm workers. Um, you know, the demographics shift as we look at kind of land ownership, and that is tied back to um, the plantation, um, you know, economy of the United States, of, that the entire United States economy is built upon, um, you know, land ownership amongst black and brown farmers has absolutely plummeted to practically nothing. I think it's 0.3% of all land wow. ownership um, in farmland production in the United States is owned by black farmers now, which it used to be in the, at least in the teens, I want to say it was up into... 20 and 30% after reconstruction. Um, so, I mean, there's a very long and very deeply sorted history of dispossession and um, it just, you know, complete, um, I, I, I don't even know the, the words to, to, to put to this. Disenfranchisement. I mean, it's, it's disenfranchisement, absolutely. And I mean, I think that there's a really inspiring um, a level of momentum right now in really turning the tides on that. And um, particularly at the federal level, I have to say that the Biden administration has done a lot to center racial equity in their, um, in all of their work. There was a, a presidential order. What is it? A, um, EO. Executive, Executive order. order. Yeah, I know. Like, I speak a lot of acronyms all day long. So the executive <laughs> order on racial equity basically, you know, gives a mandate to all of the um, agencies of the United States federal government to really center equity in all of their and all of their programming. And you are seeing that now really fleshing out within programming. So, I mean, it's very it's a really interesting and awesome time and also really challenging within the movement. Because there's a lot of white people who have not um, done the work, frankly, to understand maybe even some of the things that I've just shared. Um, sure. And, you yeah, know, I mean, like, just, like have feel a pushback against it. Of course. Yeah. When, when you've had 100%, 99% feels like oppression, I think is yeah. sort of how the the saying goes. So uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you and I are two of the white people trying to do the work um, and to spread the word. So 
with that loaded statement, I'm going to open up the phone lines. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm talking with Susan Lightfoot Shemp, and you can give us a call if you have a question or one of your favorite Susan and Mendo memories. The l- number is 707-895-2448. Um, we'll take the calls as they come in and just keep talking. Until then, again, 707-895-2448. Um, so you mentioned that you work with the White House, and I was made to understand that you got a very interesting phone call. So as we all know, supply chain is a is a whole hot topic right now. And the White House created a task force, a supply chain task force, and they called you. Tell me about that call. Um, well, they emailed me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but then we had a Zoom call, which, you know, everything happens in Zoom nowadays. But yeah, the... Including um, this interview is on Zoom. Yes, correct. Um, I am Zooming all day, every day. That's really, if we want to talk about what I do every day for my <laughs> job, that's that's practically what it is. Um, but no, I was really delighted to receive an invitation from the White House Domestic Supply Chain Task Force um, to help inform um, their understanding of what was going on in terms of supply chain disruptions within local and regional food systems. Um, you know, obviously we're seeing like what that, what supply chains look like globally and how, you know, labor shortages and um, it's mostly starting with labor shortages or labor not making it to work, um, slowing everything down in the supply chain, right? And so, you know, that has a major trickle effect, but they were wondering, like, what does that look like within the more local sector? And are people experiencing the same kinds of disruptions or does it look uniquely, uniquely different? Um, and for the most part, you know, it was that some of the challenges, and I mean, I I would say what we did, we got this invitation and you get an invitation from the white house and you're like, Oh Lord, I'm being asked (laughs) to, (laughs) I'm being asked to speak on behalf or, or for as a representative of an entire sector that is spread out across the entire United States that has a lot of nuance and diversity across it, you know, depending on, even when we just talk about in California, for goodness sakes, between Mendocino and the Central Valley, what this would look like is very different um, because of the production, um, you know, capability and, you know, labor, population, all these things. So, and and how COVID has also hit different places differently. So, I mean, it was a pretty um, significant ask for us to come and share what we were seeing. And so my team and I just activated immediately. We had this invitation. We had about one week to get an immediate pulse check on, like, what's going on. So we basically dropped everything that we had moving, and we called food hubs across the country and other like leaders that we know that are really well positioned in their states that could give us a snapshot of what was going on. And we what was going on, just to clarify, in local food distribution. Yeah, um, local food sort distribution of, yeah. specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And um, we pulled all that information together and then met with Trisha Kovacs, who's the senior advisor on agriculture to the White House um, and met with her and shared 
our findings and what we learned. So, I mean, it was, it was really interesting because I had never been in a conversation like that before with that high up of staff. Um, there were people from the um, economic development associate or agency. See, I don't even know the names of these agencies. <laughs> it's okay. They're not listening. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there, it was really interesting because there were a lot of people in this meeting that I did not know. And they were just basically there. They're like analysts in a way they were there to listen to what people like I and other, you know, representatives of different sectors were coming and sharing. And then they were doing like the next level of synthesis. Um, so we were like distilling everything that we were getting. And then they're there to like distill even more information that then basically bring to the president. And was their uh, goal to see if there was capacity at the local level to improve distribution? I mean, what yeah. were your findings? Yeah, I mean, they were, that was definitely one of the questions was, you know, what's going on and is there a, a potential for more local and regional supply chains to fill in some of the gaps that have been left by more, you know, industrial globalized food system? Um, and then also this question of, you know, are people being impacted in the same way? And I think to first starting there, you know, yes, people are being impacted the same way that like things like boxes that, you know, the Mendel Lake Food Hub probably had challenges getting boxes to be able to, you know, pull things together, just like supplies and inputs. Um, glass jars, for example, were really hard to come by. So any of the food hubs that were doing processing couldn't find glass jars, right? Or the prices of these things are going up. Um, and because they were getting them through the global supply chain, um, these, you know, it's not like we have local box producers. No, <laughs> so, when we need honey jars, we have to drive to the bay. And they were out for months and months. So I felt this pain acutely. Yeah. So those kinds of things, absolutely. But I mean, on the inverse, what we noticed, and, and this is definitely a trend across the country, is that because food hubs and other kind of, you know, community-based distribution enterprises, they are just that. They are community-based. They have relationships and networks. They work with a whole bunch of different people. They are in direct relationship with their farmers, with their with their buyers, with you know the folks that they're getting their boxes from, etc. So they were able to lean hard into those relationships and find solutions for the different challenges that were coming up as a result of COVID much more quickly and much more creatively than the more sort of rigid and siloed out supply chains and the more industrial, you know, kind of globalized food system were able to do. And so you didn't see as many disruptions. And in fact, you actually saw um, for most food hubs, a growth in sales in the last two years, an increased demand and a lot more activity happening. And so we've been unbelievably busy over the last couple of years. Um, the best kind of busy. The, Responding yeah. to good problems. Be for yourself. I mean, yes, <laughs> but I'm tired. I'm definitely tired. Right, um, but what but you're describing really is positive growth. I mean, obviously, if yeah. you're working really hard to figure out ways to meet the increased demand for uh, local food hubs and local food distribution systems, that's a better problem than if you're trying to figure out why all the hubs are dying. So yes, hooray for, for thriving, hooray for <laughs> thriving <laughs> local food sheds. Um, what would you say is the capacity of local food systems in the U.S.? I mean, and is that regional? Are they sort of like growing strong across the board? Are certain regions of the U.S. doing well where others are falling behind? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely growing across the board. 
Um, and there's just really exciting work happening in every little corner of the country. And I think, you know, it's, it's a story that we need to do a better job of sharing because, because of the nature of local food systems, they're local. <laughs> so they don't necessarily have a national audience, right? So telling that more collective story um, is challenging because we don't, it's like we only see the little piece in our community, right? We're not able to sort of see the whole picture and how there's really like this mycelia of connections of small farms and family farms across the country that are in, you know, urban farms. I mean, here in New Orleans, there's like a, a huge community of urban growers um, and, you know, very strong farmer's market culture and a lot that's happening um, in kind of school interfaces, a very strong school garden um movement here in new orleans and all across the south so, i mean there's there's a lot happening in across the country but people don't necessarily see that and the, me the news media doesn't talk about it um and so you know there is a lot of capacity i think one of the the challenges is you know we always talk about how do we scale this up um and what we know is like for a for a farm um, in particular, to be able to grow, there has to be a market and that market has to be committed. And the way in which the, you know, American food system and really the global food system is, is set up is for just-in-time delivery. The question is just-in-time inventory. It's like, what have you got? That's always the question to the farmer. Well, what have right you got? Now. Yeah. Right now. What's in the right? field? What can you pick? It's the wrong question. Hmm. And it's, everything is designed around that instead of thinking about like, if I was to commit to a relationship with you for, you know, next year, what could you have if I have this much that I could buy, right? And so, I mean, it's like we got to start thinking about the way that we design markets in a different way and starting with what that contract or that demand level is and then working backwards from there because, like, farmers and food hubs and, you know, all the different players in the system, they will hustle to make that happen when there's that opportunity. But it's always like, we feel like in this work, we're always sort of always stuck in that conundrum of the chicken or the egg. It's like, well, do we grow the production first and then that'll like push on demand or do we get, you know, push on demand and then that'll instigate supply. And it's like, it's gotta be both. And, and I think that there's, really robust work in the both end of, you know, really pushing buyers to um, make commitments and to shift their practices and to change the way that they do their contracting and the timing that they do that, et cetera. So you're, you're talking about forward contracting? Forward contracting or whatever it may be, um, whatever their systems are for like making a commitment mm. to purchasing from local producers and doing that at a fair price. You know, there's just like a lot that has to be worked on to grow that up. Um, and I think that there's a lot of capacity and potential. I know there is. I don't think there is. I know there is. I mean, we have data to back this up. Um, and what's exciting is to see that the USDA is really trying to invest in that. There are some pretty significant initiatives right now coming out of the USDA that are explicitly for building up local and regional food systems. And it's really coming more from a supply chain perspective because they're concerned about Rightfully supply so, chain disruption as they should be i mean yeah. we've always known that there was the potential for some sort of like catastrophe right like 101 could get totally shut off in either direction there could be some massive earthquake or um you know just like there could be some apocalyptic event and 
we would be on our own. And so that was always where I was coming from in my urgency to help develop a really strong local food shed. But now the pandemic has been this really kind of not slow. I don't want to say slow moving, but we are two years in. So it feels kind of slow at this point. The slow moving catastrophe that has really impacted every sector of our lives, including how we get goods, including our food. And so I think it's it was almost the best case scenario to move local food shed development forward because it wasn't an emergency. You know, you maybe couldn't get the exact food you wanted, but we've always had food on the shelves, um, except for a little toilet paper debacle right there at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> but it does feel like we're taking really important incremental steps toward capacity building. Do you think that's an accurate sort of assessment of the local food movement? I Absolutely. Um, I think it's, you know, more than ever, there is a, a, an awareness in the American psyche of what the food system is. And I think it's because of the supply chain disruptions. There's more of a sense of like, oh, okay. And I mean, the media has been talking about it more, particularly, you know, as COVID was impacting, um, you know, workers in meatpacking plants and such. I think there's a much bigger awareness of like the meat industry in particular right now. And I think that's, it's great. There's like a, a collective reckoning and awakening happening and more of a sense of what, that why a local food system matters. Maybe we can finally get that local meat, uh, meat processing plant well, open here in big Mendocino money, County. Plenty of money to go around for for supporting that, um, but again, I mean, it goes back to some of these market dynamics that I was talking about. I mean, you've got to make sure that the demand is there. I mean, folks have to be able to sell that in order to have a meat processing facility. You've got to have enough scale, um, and so you've got to have enough demand to make sure that folks are actually going to buy up what's being processed. Um, in order to afford to keep it running. Yeah, I mean, another big change has been the increase in cost of sort of our commodity foods or just all of our mm -hmm. foods in a way that has really not leveled the playing field, obviously, but so often, whether it's accurate or inaccurate, one of the sort of complaints against local food is it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, well, anyone who does grocery shopping lately can see that everything is more expensive. And local food prices, really, when I go to the farmer's market, it's not that different from the prices I was paying a year ago versus when I buy, you know, anything at the grocery store. It's significantly more expensive than it was a year ago. So, and again, it's sort of that, like, it's a little bit of an equalization, a little bit mm -hmm. of these incremental steps toward, well, it really local food isn't that much more expensive and it has so many other benefits um that are you know it's keeping that money in the economy supporting your neighbors you, you know you know how it is mm -hmm. well we have about 10 minutes left i'm just going to remind folks um that you can call in if you have burning questions about supply chain or local food questions or susan's personal life when she lived here in mendo <laughs> She has a lot of good stories. 707-895-2448. Uh, Give us a buzz if you want to chat. Um, so what is the biggest threat then to this growth in the local food system growth capacity building? I mean, oof. <laughs> and that, those kinds of questions are hard because, I mean, it's like I can't like point to one particular thing. Um maybe honestly like our own sense of possibility Ooh, and like how just like 
I think that folks have tried a lot of different things and felt um, like it didn't work. And so um, but going back to something I'd said previously, you know, food systems, people tend to be real practical. And so if something is like, I tried that, it didn't work, you know? And so, but it's also like remembering that like context has changed. Like we have different tools we can pull in, like, let's think about it in a fresh way. Like, and I think honestly, if that was anything that I could um, reflect back on in my time in Mendocino on the coast is that oftentimes there's a lot of no's about things. There's a lot of like, there's pulling, um, I don't know. I don't want to say anything negative about right. this. I'm well, gonna I'm going to cut you I'm off saying. and take this call. <laughs> cut me off. I'm going to take this call. Hi, caller. You are live on the air. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to hear this conversation. My mother helped to found NCO back in 1968. Uh, she grew up in Casper. And, and I'm really happy because I'm an organic farmer, two acres, five acres, three acres. And I think a land trust, we've got to work on... Things like um, it's maintaining the skills that our ancestors have had, you know, that don't haven't always been appreciated or respected. Uh, that's what I think Mendocino's the small farmer, not the agribusiness, but the little the little guys that can, you know, watermelons and pumpkins and tomatoes and enough to, you know, take care of the, the pear, when you said pears and peaches and, and walnuts and pecans. We, you know, every air, apples, we, every area has its strengths. And I think the, uh, I wanted to throw out just as a curveball, I'm into into windmills. I'd like to see a resurrection of windmills where people can access the, the underground water, the water tables that are there within every community instead of having to transport or, you know, figure out if we could just the sustainable, sustainable did, organic, keep working with the birds and did, the insects. Did you want Susan to weigh in on how she feels about windmills? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay. Just things like how do we get these things because she's honoring the farmer. She's honoring the farm workers and the farmers and the the little the little people, you know, that don't always get their names in papers. We're just little people, just doing getting by. You know, I'm, I'm a wood stove woman, and I've and I've been that way all my days. And I've raised six kids on six twenty three a month, eight fifty six a month. I don't know how, except that the food. Mm-hmm. I'm a gleaner. You know, I, you go out and you gather from the creek, and you know the plants and the wild organics and the native plants. I'd love to see native plants be involved in this too and get the granges and the schools. I, I helped to found the original uh, garden up in Laytonville for years, for 20 years. We breathed, They had a vermiculture, worm, worm beds, and it wasn't common, you know, but we had the children and they had rabbits. And, you know, it was just an honorable, small scale. It didn't have to be big, but slowly and surely, and organic, what's it called, um, herbs. You know, getting today the the schools are able to use the food that the children have grown, the strawberries, even if it's, you know, just a small amount. And I think it's awesome, and we just you keep doing what you're doing. I'm just smiling and pleased. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you so, so much, much for the call. Really sweet. I remember going and seeing the worm bins at Laytonville um, Unified School District. I can't remember which school it was at, but learning from them in the school garden that was there. Um, and also you were just making me hungry talking about all the wonderful products that are grown in Mendocino County and things that I can't get. I know the Meyer lemons are on strong right now. The walnuts are excellent. Hasn't been a very good crab year, but what are you going to do? We got plenty of crabs down here. Come down (laughs) to New Orleans. You can have a blue crab, which is a different, it's a different deal, but I prefer them over Dungeness crabs. But, um, you know, I, I think just to your point, um, 
I think that what every human being needs to do is know how to grow some food. I mean, it is an essential life skill. It should be equated with, you know, knowing how to cook, knowing how to just like change a tire. I mean, just it is a really important life skill and survival skill. And I think it is something that Mendocino County has to offer the rest of the world is like, you know, a lot of people have kitchen gardens. And that's something that we ought to see everywhere. Um, it's so easy to grow just a few things um, and just to like practice that so that in the event that we do need to um, shift our attention back towards agriculture, um, that at least we have somewhere to start, that we have some skills. And it's really exciting to see how many children are engaged in you know, school gardening in particular because they're getting some of those, um, those skills. So there's definitely a very strong school garden community in Mendocino County that's been going strong for a really long time. And, um, and y'all have influenced other communities in that way um, that folks have learned from you. Um, and, you know, it's happening all over the country now. Well, and the Mendo Lake Food Hub set a lot of really um, relevant, useful examples for other food hubs around the country. Um, like I said before, and we used to joke about this, but not in a funny way, that the, the Mendocino and Lake County really do have every single problem when it comes to local food distribution. We have incredibly small farms. We are extremely rural um, with very long distances between farmers and um, buyers. Uh, we have a very small population, so there's only so much money to go around to be buying this food. So by solving those problems or, you know, finding workable solutions that have to sort of constantly be evolving, um, we did set examples that other food hubs studied. Um, mm -hmm. Can you think of an example? I remember that you and I had talked about this a while back about how the food hub was really um, helping others take shape. Or maybe just yeah. like counting their lucky stars that they only had maybe two of our 12 problems. I think that this is still a part of the practice of, of Mendo Lake Food Hub, but like the idea of nodes of where yes. farmers were bringing their product together um, in various parts of the country or of the county onto a farmer at that farm. There was like a cold storage unit yep. that was, you know, set up there for the farmers to bring their stuff. And then the distribution route was paying, picking up and dropping off at those spots. That is absolutely an innovation. Um, that has been picked up by a lot of other food hubs across the country and that I refer to a lot um, as folks are trying to figure out how to have the this distribution system be more farmer owned. Because um, I think that's really important. It's like having the, the means of distribution um, and marketing be owned and controlled by the producers um, or at the very least in a organization and a partner that really centers the needs of those producers. Like that's, that's absolutely critical um, because if not, then it, it does become more of a classic middleman. And I don't think that um, the, the Mendo Lake food hub and most of the food hubs that, that we are in relationship with, they really center the needs of the farmers and also like their, their kind of dual mission is about increasing access to fresh, healthy food to folks um, in need. And so, I mean, there's, it's a real challenge to be able to do that price-wise. Um, but I think that Mendo Lake Food Hub is... Uh-oh, Susan froze. Oh, dear. Well, Did she I break up? Oh, there you are. You're back. Go ahead. New Orleans infrastructure. Our <laughs> internet goes out a lot. <laughs> it, we made it through almost the whole hour. Yeah. 
Anyways, um, yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic model, and I'm really delighted that it's still still happening. It's still going strong. Um, I will do a plug for the Mendeleev Food Hub right now. Um, I'm not affiliated with them in any way, so I don't think it's shady, other than being one of the people who helped <laughs> get it off the ground. Uh, but private individuals can buy from the Food Hub, and you can also encourage your uh, grocer to buy from them. You can encourage restaurants you go to to buy from them. Uh, you do through the Mendeley Food Hub is a direct support of our local economy. So I just go check it out. It's very, very cool. As are you, Susan Lightfoot. It's been such a delight having you on the show today. Um, do you have any final words of wisdom for what Mendocino County folks can do to just keep our local supply chain strong? <laughs> keep growing food. Keep going to the farmer's market. Keep making this, you know, something that you're really serious about. Like, don't let energy um, wane. I think that that's the, that's the thing is, like, this can never stop. I mean, just like with any system, you've, you've got to keep putting energy and attention to it. Um, and I think that, you know, Mendocino County has a really long, beautiful history of the community committing to this work. And I just, you know, invite everyone to step in and lean in a little harder. I know, you know, organizations like the Noya Food Forest need ongoing support. Um, and it takes a lot of energy and time to keep these projects up and running. It takes a lot of effort to keep farms running. And so, you know, if we don't support them, they will disappear. And then that will be a much more serious issue if they're not there anymore. So they shouldn't be just limping along. They should be thriving. And it's a requirement of every community member to really um, to support that and to, to be committed and to, you know, commit their resources and time and energy to make sure that we have a community-based food system that makes food available for all. Thank you, Susan. I really appreciated you taking the time to talk with us today. And so good to be here. That, Thank you. <laughs> that's it for the Farm and Garden Show. I will be back in two weeks and can't wait to bring you more interesting stories of uh, food, farms, and gardens. Until then, I'm signing off. Stay tuned right now for Democracy Now! If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.